Welcome to the Botstaber Austrian American Podcast. We stayed, the, the Americans, the, the parents of my pen pal, send us some pictures, which were very nice, some papers, which were very nice because they didn't know us. We could have been bank robbers or murderers. They had no idea, but they thought if we were in need, they would help. Joining us today is guest host Dr. Jacqueline Van Sant for a special three-part podcast series on Austrian children and youth fleeing Nazi Austria. Hi, I'm Jacqueline, and my first guest is Kirstner Crick-Eigner, a professor at German at Walford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. In much of her scholarly work, she's focused on the literature of Austrian women writers, such as Ingeborg Bachmann, Elisabeth Reichert, and Christina Nurslinger. She's also published on exile writers, among the others, Soma Morgenstern. So, Kirsten, before we focus on your um, specific topic, could you share your background research you did on some of the challenges that Austrians faced fleeing the country for the United States after the Anschluss in March of 1938? Yes, to give you a little bit of a background about the situation for Jewish Austrians. So in January 1938, there were about 190,000 Jewish Austrians living in Austria, and most of those were in Vienna. And after the annexation of Austria in March of that year, most consulates in the Nazi territory refused to issue visas for those wanting to leave. Um, and after the no November pogroms or Kristallnacht perpetrated on Jewish Austrians and Germans in November, it became increasingly difficult for families to escape Nazi persecution. So obtaining a visa was a big challenge. And, you know, most American consulates required a complete dossier, which included a record, record of military service, if there was such a thing, but also two certified copies of birth certificates and all other records, which was impossible for many who had, you know, returned from labor camps or been forced out of their homes. And on top of that, those seeking refuge in the U.S. also needed to find an American sponsor willing to sign a financial affidavit promising to support them. So in September 1939, at the beginning of World War II, there were already 300,000 people, mostly Jewish German speakers, on the State Department's waiting list. And by December of the next year, um, there were, you know, many had uh, fled Austria, but there were still 50 to 60,000 Jewish Austrians living in Vienna. Uh, most were unemployed. Their bank accounts were frozen. Many were in hiding. So that made it almost impossible for those Jewish Austrians to leave at that point. So six months later, beginning in July 41, the situation was even more dire because the U.S. consulates in the Nazi-occupied territories forcibly closed those consulates, and only refugees who found themselves outside of those territories could even apply for a U.S. visa. So this just made escape by immigration to the U.S. really unattainable for most and the U.S. also continued to maintain its restricted policy on immigration uh, following World War I. And so it really limited immigration quotas to the U.S. to roughly, I think, 164,000 from anywhere in the world. So in the end, uh, if we look at who was able to immigrate uh, with these 
great difficulties and challenges and hurdles, 125,000 Jewish German speakers immigrated to the U.S. between 1933 and 1945. And of those German speakers, of those Jewish German speakers, 29,000, roughly 29,000 Jewish Austrians migrated to the U.S. between 1938, so during the year of the Anschluss and 1945. And among those were the, the winter family members. So it was, it was a very difficult situation and um, unimaginable, really. Well, that's a great context for our uh, discussion. So my own research on this topic of youth uh, focuses on a group of Jewish Austrian classmates who were 15 and 16 years old in March of 1938, and they fled between April 1938 and April 1939. And to keep in touch as a group, they came up with this group um, letter, a round letter, that they um, started in 1938 and it crossed three continents. It lasted 10 years. And this is one of the reasons why I was particularly drawn to your topic, um, Kirsten. So in your article, you focus on an epistolary friendship between two girls, an Austrian and American. So who were these two and how and when did the exchange come about? It's wonderful that that your uh, project also focuses on letter writing. So Mariana, when she was, so Mariana Vinta was 14 years old when she began exchanging letters with her American pen pal named Jane Bombegger, who lived in Reading, Pennsylvania. And they were matched by chance, as they said, through the Campfire Girls Association or organization. And Bombegger had chosen Mariana's list randomly off, off uh, during a Campfire Girls meeting. And the reason for the exchange, Mariana later said, was to create an uh, an effort to improve the Austrian student's English, which I found amusing. But her English was pretty good. It was good enough to write letters back and forth. And so the girls exchanged letters and also sent small gifts like handkerchiefs and scarves to each other. And uh, we only have six letters from Mariana to Jane that span September 1935 to August 1938. And um, so you know, I looked at those letters very carefully, and it's wonderful to see their friendship evolve during that time. So can you share with us it's um, the amazing consequence of this exchange for the family? Oh, absolutely. So after the Anschluss in 1938, Mariana realized how dire the situation was for the family, and she wrote to Jane uh, in a letter asking her for help. And she wondered if Jane knew any wealthy Americans who could sponsor her family. But it turns out that Jane then discussed this with her family, and especially her father, and he asked what it would take to help them. So this exchange went back and forth, and the Bombergers agreed to help the Vinter family, uh, which meant that they needed to uh, write an affidavit, which would prove that they could sponsor a family of four when they came to the U.S., so Jane's father was building two houses at the time. He was a carpenter, and they were in his name, and he used those as proof that he could financially support the Vinters. And so he signed the affidavit in July 1938, already one month after Mariana asked for help. And so at first, uh, and then the Vinters used the consulate in Prague, the U.S. consulate in Prague, because Anna Vinter, Mariana's mother's family, was from there. And so they waited... Uh, in Prague for the paperwork to go through. And it took many, many months. And I believe in December, they received their paperwork, actually late December, early January, and were then able to take a ship to the U.S. 
which saved them because in March already the um, Hitler's troops invaded Czechoslovakia. Wow. So how did they get from Prague to the ship? Uh, believe it or not, they flew by plane yeah. because wow. they were afraid of being arrested on the train. So they used absolutely their last funds. They had used their last funds to buy the uh, ship tickets and uh, were staying with family members in Prague while they were waiting for their paperwork to come through. But they used their last funds to buy these uh, plane tickets. So that must have been quite terrifying. Yeah. So let's back up a little. Can you tell us a little bit about Mariana? And although there are that not that many letters, what sort of sense did you get of her as a person? I think she was a very, uh, uh, you know, active teenager, very lively. And when she wasn't attending school, she wrote that she spent the holidays with her family in the countryside outside of Vienna or with her mother's family in Czechoslovakia. She writes about enjoying swimming competitively with the Jewish Viennese sports club Hakoa. And she also, uh, in one of the letters written during the winter, she writes that she loves ice skating and going dancing. And she even describes a ball to Jane um, where she attended with her friends from the swim club. And she was very proud that all of them wore the traditional Austrian dirndl. So she sounds just like a, what you would call a happy, normal teenager. Uh-huh. So, and um, what about her educational background? Yeah, she went to a public uh, elementary school. She went to a few public elementary schools within Vienna. And then she attended a famous private school called the Schwarzwaldschule, which was established to further the education of, of young women and girls. Mm. So she had the opportunity of doing that. Uh, she only went to that high school for a few years, and then she took on an apprenticeship as a tailor, which was supposed to last three years, but that was cut short because she was escaping to the U.S. Uh. Mm-hmm. So you told us a little bit about her pen pal's father's profession as a carpenter. What about um, Mariana's father and her family? Did she have any siblings? Um... Yes. they. Well, her family was uh, a middle class, educated, artistically minded, uh, liberal, as a politically liberal Jewish Austrian family. And Max Winter was a chemist who owned a perfume shop on the ground floor of their apartment. And he had served as an officer in World War I, where he had met his wife, Anna, who was playing the piano for recovering soldiers. And then Mariana was born in 1921 and her brother five years later uh, in 1926. And his name uh, was Stefan. And where in Vienna did they um, live? They lived in the Ninth District. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which... Yeah, it's near the Palais Schwarzenberg, I believe. Mm. So um, you mentioned earlier that Mariana seemed pretty aware that the family had to to flee after um, the Germans marched in. But what, what about her parents? I mean, did they see, was it clear to them that they had to, to flee Austria? Well, it's interesting that you asked that because for a long time, uh, apparently Mariana's father insisted that nothing would happen to the family since he had served as an officer in the military. But really the Anschluss... And and then uh, especially the events of the of the pogroms in November, absolutely made it clear to the family that they had to flee. But there was a particular event. Um, so maybe before I talk about the event, in in an interview, Mariana that she gave later in her life, she always said that her parents sheltered their children from the news. They would not listen to Hitler on the radio. They did not let their kids out in the streets when um, Hitler had made you know gave his speech in March of 1938. 
And she recalls that during the Anschluss, she was at a private lesson and her teacher made her go home quickly because of the marching and screaming in the streets of Vienna. But I think one of the events that really fueled their wanting to leave was they were one day on a walk as a family in the 19th district of Vienna, which is a lovely area of Vienna. And they were stopped by Nazi stormtroopers. And Mariana said they let her father go because he said he had been an officer in World War I and her brother was just a little boy. But she and her mother had to scrub floors of a building that had been taken over by the Nazis. Um, and they were let go after a short while. But but she does say in the interview, this was quite a shock to the family. Understandably, yeah. I can imagine. It's so unusual, too, that the father and um, brother would be let go and the, the, the mother. I mean, that's something I hadn't heard that, that much um, about before. Yeah. So... Kirsten, when you started working on this, I mean, a lot of your research was done during the, the this past year. So how um, what sources did you use and how could you um, were they available digitally? Yes, I was extremely lucky. I came upon the story uh, through a digital exhibit, which you which you also saw right on Mariana and Jane. Yeah. At the. United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and I wanted to know more about it. So I began doing research and found there are two digitally available oral interviews to, uh, done with Mariana Vinta. What was in 2000? And that was for a film on her earlier life as a swimmer and a reunion with her uh, swim club members. That's a film by Yaron um, Zilberman called Watermarks which I came upon last summer, although it was uh, made much earlier. Um, but in it, there's a brief interview with Mariana from 2000. And then there's a wonderful interview that was done as part of an oral history project through the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And that was done in 2015. And, and it's fun to see how she looks back on her life and revisits the experiences that she writes about in her letters. And there's also, there are two digital collections of, of documents. So the one, I guess I used both, but the one I refer to more often is the one that has Mariana's letters. And that is also available through United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And that is called the Vinter Family Papers. So that has letters and her report cards, letters from her family members, uh, uncles and aunts and parents, and many of the travel documents. And then Mariana remarried a also former refugee from Austria named Alexander Seligmann, and they donated all their papers to the Leo Beck Institute. So I used some of those papers and learned more about her brother and was able to see some newspaper articles about their first days in Reading, Pennsylvania. So that was a wonderful gift to have all those things handy. Yeah, I can imagine. So in, in looking back, what did you find the most challenging as you worked on this project? Hmm. The most challenging, I would say I got sidetracked off all the other interesting information I found. I found myself, uh, for example, absolutely intrigued with Alexander Seligman's guest book from his cafe that he ran, which hosted refugees from Eastern, Western, Central Europe uh, who had come to New York City. Um, and he had opened that cafe in 1939. So the guest book is just amazing. So I spent hours doing that. <laughs> and yeah, just reading about other 
family members who escaped uh, with the help of the Vinters. So my, my research kept expanding like a spider web, I think. Now, it's a fascinating topic, and particularly this cafe. Mm-hmm. So it was in New York? It was in New York City. It was called Café Eclair. And so Alexander Zeligman, I've not done that much research on him, but he was a sugar trader. And he came over as a young, young man with, you know, very little money in his pocket, but co-founded this cafe. And all kinds of fascinating people came through that cafe. But Mariana Zeligman became friends. I mean, well, she was later Mariana Zeligman, but Mariana Winter uh, married her first husband and had two children. And when her first husband unfortunately passed away from cancer, she remarried a dear family friend, this uh, Alexander Zeligman, who had also lost his wife. And they had a lovely time traveling together. And they even ran that cafe for a few years before they sold it. So it, it was a well-established cafe uh, with, with European flair. Ah, I'd like to have a melange right now. Yes, so. and Apfelstrudel. They had all the, they had Apfelstrudel and Sachertorte. But what fascinated me, they also had a lot of Eastern European dishes, you know, goulash and, and other wonderful things that cater to their, uh, you know, clients, their clients from all over Europe. So, and you mentioned this guest book. Could you, like, do you remember any of the names that appeared? I want to say Kurt Weil, not mm-hmm. 100% sure anymore, but um, mm-hmm. the one that sticks out is the name of a woman who, who became a famous children's book author, um, Liesel Weil. She was also a refugee from Vienna, and she settled in New York City and lived with her sister and really became a famous American children's book author. And I even grew up with some of her books and had no idea about her background. But she was one of the first people to sign the guest book. And on that page, she drew a little Kugelhopf cake <laughs> with <laughs> little raisins in it because she was also an illustrator. So I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have lots of um, sort of future research there, too. Yes. <laughs> so was there anything um, that surprised you when you were doing this research on Mariana? Yes, I think I thought about that. Uh, One thing that surprised me and saddened me, I think, was to learn that the U.S. only took in 1,000 to 1,400 unaccompanied children during the whole war. And, you know, Great Britain took in about 10,000 with the Kindertransport. So that was quite shocking to me. Mm -hmm. I think that surprised me the most. And then on a positive note, what surprised me was just how the friendship developed and became such a deep friendship just in writing letters. You know, they didn't have the immediacy that we have today when we talk to each other or talk to family far away. They didn't have, you know, FaceTime or Zoom. They had to wait for the letters to arrive. But and yet they they had this uh, they developed a deep friendship. And that was really lovely to see. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Did, mm-hmm. do you, um, did they remain friends after she came to the United States? From what I understood, uh, they they still remained friends. She doesn't say much about it in her 2015 interview, um, other than she said she was sad that she had lost her letters during her many moves. You know what I found the most moving was that these two teenage girls really were determined, and they were determined to help each other and to make things right. You know, they they called upon their parents to do the, you know, Jane and her father agreed that they were going to help this family. But the determination and the optimism, I find even in the interview from 2015, the the joy that Mariana Winter, now Zeligman, really 
continue to experience in her life. You know, she always looked forward and, you know, just had this marvelous life that she created for herself. So one of the things that I think is so amazing is that um, Jane's father did the affidavit. Did mm-hmm. I mean, was there any indication that he was at all worried that they would become that that in quotations public charge? I I don't I didn't notice any of that mm-hmm. in the letter exchanges. There were some letter exchanges between Max Winter and um, Joseph Bomberger in which uh, Max Winter expresses his deep, deep gratitude. And and in one of the letters, he expresses great desperation because at that point, the first affidavit had been turned down. And what's what's so interesting is that Max Winter had to reach out to Joseph Bomberger and ask him for additional information so that the affidavit would finally be accepted. So Joseph Bombaga had to to send information about his you know bank account and whatever other money he possessed so that he could prove to the U.S. consulate that he would be able to support this family. But I never had the sense that he was worried that it would be a burden. Maybe he mm. was, but he never shared that with, with the Vinter family. Was Mariana's father able to get a job fairly quickly after he arrived, you know? You know, I don't have any details, but it seems so because they stayed with the Bombeggers for a week and then a Jewish American association uh, took the family in and helped them find housing. And it said to help them find employment. I think I remember reading that that he continued working in his profession as a chemist, but I don't have any details. But I do know this, that Mariana very quickly took on a job as a dressmaker and she was the youngest of the dressmakers and so continued her you know learning her skill of sewing and she then took that to the next level by becoming a dressmaker in New York City so she did she found work very quickly while her brother was only 13 so he went to school and i do know they bought an old they said an old mansion i'm not sure what that means but they did buy a house so i think that they were able to secure you know have have enough money to be able to live well. So Kirsten, you just mentioned her brother, her younger brother, and I know you've um, found out a little bit about him and his the impact of coming to the United States on him. Could you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, after I did all this research on Mariana, I stumbled upon a speech that someone wrote for his retirement. And I was so moved by it. Honestly, I think that he could have been a whole nother project. So when Stefan was 13, you know, he arrived in Reading, Pennsylvania, and Mariana said he was taken to the Jewish American community and bar mitzvah. And so he he made friends quite readily. And then he attended Albright College on a scholarship and received his PhD in chemistry from Columbia University in 1953. But what really struck me was the retirement speech that I found online. You know, I would just keep digging. And he, when he retired from Tufts in 1991, uh, I found out all the things he had accomplished. So he he furthered the education of bilingual student in math and science in in the public school system. And he did a lot of international work and outreach in higher education that took him to 20 countries. So I imagine that as a young German-speaking refugee, he benefited from the support of strangers and his new friends and American teachers, and he may have wanted to give back. And he also saw all the opportunities that he was able to to gain through his experience as a bilingual child. And so I think, like I said, he he is said to have been someone who fostered 
his passion and others' passion for education and science, and he built bridges across the world. And he definitely supported children who came from outside of the U.S. with his education work of bilingual students. Wow. So when you think about your research on this and other projects, as well as your teaching, what do you see as the benefit or significance of looking at um, this transatlantic dialogue between the U.S. and Austria? Well, I guess I always find ways to integrate my research interests in Austria, uh, mostly about literature at this point, but into my teaching, because it just keeps my interest level and enthusiasm high when I teach. And I often teach works of literature I've written about or given papers on in my upper level classes. But last year, for example, uh, I taught a semester of a humanities course for first year students. And that topic was up to me. So I focused on activism and resistance in the German speaking world in the 20th and 21st centuries. And we had a unit on migration. So I was actually able to share with the class uh, Mariana's experiences and then also past research I've done on the Hindertransport of Jewish Austrian children who fled or helped to flee to Great Britain. And I also talked about Jewish Austrian migration to Shanghai, China, where, you know, almost 20,000 German speakers migrated. It was the only port where uh, that didn't demand a passport. So in a last desperate attempt to flee, there were many German speakers who took a ship to Shanghai, China with the last of their funds. So I was able to share these experiences with students. And I did focus on Austria because that's my interest. And I focused on the stories of younger people because I feel like my students are typically 18 or 19 years old in that particular class. And I felt like they could relate better to stories of refugees who were their same age. And I really focused also on stories of survival and of resistance because I felt like I was able to empower students that way and educate them on the human side and the human individual experience within this larger historical event of World War II and the Holocaust. So I felt like it was going to impart empathy and you know a deeper understanding of this history. And I wanted them to understand that these acts of kindness, like Jane showed Mariana, can make a difference and they, it can change the events of history. And so I hope that they left the class not you know, overwhelmed and saddened by the history of the Holocaust, but also empowered and, and with a deeper understanding of various individual experiences. So that's how I've used my research. And I feel like it brings history to life. So um, did you get much feedback from your students on the, when you've done that? I did. I, I made them. Uh, well, I didn't make them. <laughs> I encouraged them to write a reflection at the end of the semester. And I did get the feeling that many of them confessed to not having been active in anything before they came to college, that they did not feel compelled to be active for any cause or or take part in anything. But after the class, they felt like there were things they could do and to make the world a better place. We had units on um, the environment as well. And so they felt compelled to even help in a small way. So I do think it made a difference. And if nothing else, hopefully they came up with understanding that, like I said, uh, small acts of kindness are, are very important. So how does, how does your work on this epistolary friendship have relevance today? Well, I hope 
students, children and students, you know, college students and high school students can find opportunities to reach, reach out and meet others who are not like them in the world. And there's so many high school exchange programs. You know, the, we have the Rotary program at Fulbright. I hope they will take those opportunities because I, I see that those exchanges can improve diplomacy between countries and can lead to a more sustainable peace mm. if people engage with one another. So, and today with the internet, I think if teachers in elementary and high schools, if they have those contexts, they can perhaps, uh, you know, somehow arrange for students to exchange emails possibly. I think that would, that would be a wonderful opportunity. So I know before COVID-19 made it impossible to travel or to go to archives, you were scheduled to do some research in Austria. Could you tell us a little bit about the project? Oh, yes. I literally came back on a half-empty airplane <laughs> where people were terrified of, of catching COVID. I made it home from my one-week research trip. It was basically, I was, I was there, I was in Vienna in February to begin my research and also to meet people with whom that I would have longer, you know, research conversations. And so that never happened in the summer, but I did manage to, to get a little bit of work done before I left. So I'm doing work on or doing research on the children's big author and painter, Bettina Ehrlich. She, her maiden name was Bettina Bauer. So she usually goes by Bettina Ehrlich and she was, she fled Vienna uh, she was Jewish Austrian. She fled in 1938 to London, where she was. She, she joined her husband, who was working there as a sculptor, and she had to give up her blossoming career as a as an oil painter. And she really ended up supporting her husband largely when they lived in London. And she ended up writing and illustrating about 20 children's books in English, and many of them were absolutely popular at the time, but they have not been reprinted. And so unless you buy them as I have on eBay or find them in antique stores, they're just not available. They do not exist at libraries. And so I wanted to do, I want to do a, a research project on her children's books. They're absolutely lovely. And many of them are about war. And my favorite story is her trilogy about Kokolo the donkey. He is a refugee donkey who comes to America and they have, and Kokolo marries a donkey and they have a little son named Piccolo. So then there ended to be a trilogy. So Kokolo was first written in 1945. The next one was Kokolo comes to America in 1949. And then Piccolo was published as a small little square book in 1954. And she, you know, was very popular during her time. But like I said, somehow they never got reprinted. And so now there is a wonderful publisher named Jen McDonald, who has a publishing company called For Pity's Sake. It's in Sydney, Australia. And I came across her on the internet because I found that she had published two of Bettina's books. So she has gotten the, she, she grew up with these books and wondered also why they didn't exist anymore. So she took it upon herself to get the rights to at least six of those 20 books. And so we've uh, been communicating by Zoom and by email, and we've become good friends. And so we plan to collaborate some more in the future and we'll see where it takes us. But uh, she's printed two books so far, Francesca and Francesco and The Goat Boy. And The Goat Boy is about Bettina's life in Austria, really. And it's a very magical book. And then there's another book called Sardines and Angels that will be coming out this spring. So once again, people will get to know of Bettina, but 
honestly, before that, uh, there was just very, very little on her life. So, and, and like I said, she was a, she was a blossoming, a budding painter, uh, when she had to flee Vienna that she had had her work displayed at various galleries and, uh, she was up and coming and she just had to cut her career short and she dedicated it to her husband. So I'm hoping, uh, next summer to go back to Vienna and her, many of her illustrations and children's books that are unique. So she made some children's books that she actually printed on a, a printing press she had in her apartment, which she had to leave behind. And some of those are at the Albertina Museum. And then there's a whole uh, collection of her illustrations and other documents at the Belvedere Museum. And that's what I was not able to see anymore in February or last summer. So I've been in contact with the curator there and He's also eager to, at some point, have an exhibit of her work because there has never been one. A couple of her oil paintings uh, are have been on display at the Vienna Jewish Museum, where I first heard of her, but many of her paintings are missing. Um, the only record we have of them are black and white photographs from exhibits that she had in Vienna before she fled. So you you mentioned seeing her, you saw her for the first time, her name for the first time at the Jewish Museum. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yes, I did. I It was an exhibit of women artists who fled, who had to leave Austria um, in 1938. And I can't remember the exact name of the exhibit right now, but they were, there was a tiny little corner with some of her paintings. Um, they were very bold. Um, apparently her Pieces are described as ones under neue Sachlichkeit, so new objectivity. Yeah. And th she uses very bold colors. There were a couple um, paintings that even referenced jazz at the time, which I thought was interesting. And the, But what really was tragic was there are many, many paintings just missing. I don't know if she had to leave them behind. I don't know if they were stolen or destroyed. I, I, I don't know. So I've never been able to do that side of the research, but that's the first time I'd heard of her name. And then when I poked around a little bit, I realized she had been this really well-known children's book author and I couldn't find any of her books. So I ended up buying them here and there on eBay. You know, they would pop up on eBay and I would buy one. <laughs> so now I have, oh, I have maybe 12 of her books and Jen McDonald of uh, for pity's sake, publishing has also bought some because there is no record of the original prints. And so she has an artist she works with in Sydney who was able to use books that were in good condition to kind of rescan them into the computer and work with them. So that's been a labor of love for them. Wow, this is very exciting. I, I, I look forward to hearing more about that. So, Kirsten, I want to thank you first for your contribution to um, the journal for the con conversation today, which was um, very enjoyable. And I look forward to the time when we can see each other in person. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I so look forward to seeing you in person. And uh, thank you so much for, for letting me talk about uh, this wonderful story about Mariana and Jane. It's incredible. <laughs> it is wonderful. was produced by Dr. Jacqueline Van Sen, Dr. Kirsten Crick-Agner, Elizabeth Leitzel, and Adriana Lacona. The oral history interview with Mariana Selinger is from a 2015 interview with Gail Schwartz, and it was accessed from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. Thanks so much for listening. 
The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.